This episode of New Politics was released on the 26th of March, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the return of the Labor government in South Australia after one term in opposition, the factions in the Labor Party being weaponised by the mainstream media, and we're almost ready to go, but there's still no federal election. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, oligarch. And a big thank you to our new Patreon subscribers. Thanks for signing up. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. It's just $5 per month for the Ruby Standard Supporter level or $10 per month for the Gold Standard Supporter level. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The South Australia election was held on the weekend and the Liberal Party government was thrown out by the electorate after just one term in office. Peter Malinowskis is the new Premier in South Australia and there was a 7% swing to the Labor Party in the primary vote and a 5% swing in two-party preferred voting. Although the counting is still going on, Labor is ahead in 28 seats. It only needed 24 to win and the Liberal Party has been reduced to just 14 seats. It was an unexpected loss for the Liberal Party and certainly the magnitude of the defeat was a surprise. The narrative in the media over the past two years has been that because of the coronavirus pandemic, incumbent governments should be easily re-elected because of the fear of change within the electorate during a crisis. But we've consistently maintained that the main factor is that governments have to be competent to be returned to office and the electorate has determined that the South Australia government was not competent enough. And many people have been saying that it's a result based on state issues alone and we shouldn't read too much into it for the federal election. But David, you and I are going to go there. We think that there are quite a few federal implications for the federal government and not much of it is very good. No, I think there's very much an anti-Morrison atmosphere in the electorate. And I think anyone who is even vaguely associated is getting a hiding from it. Morrison wasn't in South Australia during the campaign, which is not uncommon. Often unpopular prime ministers aren't asked to campaign in state elections. John Howard, of course, would turn up uh, in state elections while he was prime minister. Bob Hawke would turn up in state elections when he was prime minister. Kevin Rudd would turn up in state elections when he was prime minister. However, Morrison was not asked. And for a man who tries to push the notion that he's this wildly popular, populist figure, I think it was telling that he was in Western Australia, where he's probably even more disliked than he is in South Australia. In fact, I know that he's more disliked than he is in South Australia, trying to drum up votes there. Well, every election is different, and there's a wide range of different issues and different characters in every election, whether that's state or federal or territory. And until that time that the state and federal or 
Territory elections are fought on exactly the same issues and are held on exactly the same day. We can safely say that there are substantial differences in the issues that affect state and federal elections. But I think there are some implications, mainly because the South Australia election was held so close to the federal election, and that's due before May the 21st this year. And it's never going to be a case where you just grab the votes from a state election and put the federal election boundaries over the top of them and then suggest, well, this is exactly how the state will vote federally. And realistically, there's only one seat seriously in play in South Australia, and that's Boothby, which has got a margin of 1.4%. And then the next seat after that is Sturt on a margin of 7%. So Even if the voting pattern at the federal election is the same as the South Australia state election, only one seat will be lost by the Liberal Party in South Australia. And historically, if we go back to the 1993 WA election, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people out there that remember this day, but the Labor Party in WA was expecting a massive 10% swing against them in the WA state election, but they only received a 3% swing against them. They still ended up losing that election, but Paul Keating, who was the Prime Minister at the time, he decided that the swing was nowhere near as bad as it could have been, and he announced the federal election the day after the WA election result, and he went on to win that federal election. And and of course, there were different issues in state and federal politics at the time, but real-life election results can provide political leaders with a good idea about how their party is viewed by the electorate and what voters are thinking at that particular point of time. If the 11% swing that they're saying is on the cards for the next federal election is applied nationally, there's a lot more seats in South Australia that are under the pump. But very rarely is the swing uniform. Uh, It will probably average up. There'll be seats in Victoria and Western Australia, which will be 25%. And there'll be seats in Queensland and New South Wales, which will be closer to 6 or 7%. And South Australia would most likely be on that lower end. And that's not to bring into question the intelligence or the choices of these voters. It's, I'm just looking at it as rationally as I can. I think, too, what we need to remember is that there were a few state issues that affected that vote. Marshall had been a, a reasonable premier, in terms that they had managed the pandemic fairly well up to this point. And he's the first one to have managed the pandemic well to have lost an election during the pandemic. Usually the governments that have lost have not handled the pandemic well. We can point probably most notably to Trump in uh, 2020, uh, who badly mismanaged the pandemic. Jacinda Ardern managed it extremely well and got back in in, with an increased majority in in New Zealand. I think Marshall had a few issues. One, they were an inexperienced government in a time of uncertainty, really. So I don't think they were able to um, calm the electorate enough. I think, too, he had the issue with the overstrained ambulance services with people dying uh, while waiting for an ambulance or ambulances actually being required to give the first hospital treatment, waiting in the ambulance while beds cleared, etc. And this is the type of stuff that in particularly a smaller state like South Australia is very noticeable and will cost a government an election. The other thing too is the corruption. Now all first term governments have scandals 
because they're not experienced and you get the chances in and crooks in and it can take a while to clear them out. But their reaction to the corruption was not to stand on principle and sack those and the electorate can do what they want, which tends to help incumbent governments. If you, if you do the right thing, uh, you may not lose government, New South Wales being a notable exception. But Marshall cut the funding to IBAC, uh, Independent Board Against Corruption, while he had three ministers in front of it. Now, both Mike Bed and Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales had got away with that. But New South Wales is a slightly different case. And they didn't get away with it for, for long. Bed resigning suddenly and mysteriously and Berejiklian being brought down by the organisation she tried to cut. But getting back to South Australia, that those corruptions issues were, I think, another factor. The Labor government who they'd replaced was getting tired. I think that's fair to say. And it needed a bit of time in opposition to refresh, to rebuild, to reform, which it seems they did. It's possible that we're in a period in South Australia now where there'll be a few changeovers, but early indications suggest that Malinoskis will be in for at least another term. So all of those issues related to hospitals and health and corruption issues, that would have had an influence in the South Australia election. But research in South Australia also suggested that two-thirds of people said that they were less likely to vote for the Liberal Party once that connection was made between the Liberal Party and Scott Morrison. So, of course, much of Labor's election material showed images of the South Australia Premier, Stephen Marshall, with Scott Morrison. And you referred to this before, David, that Stephen Marshall came across publicly as a competent leader who managed the pandemic relatively well. And that was until the Omicron breakout in December and, and also those corruption issues that they really struggled to manage. But a normal first term government is given a little bit of slack when it comes to these issues, but they were nowhere near as bad as the Newman government in Queensland or the Bailu-Napthain government in Victoria, and they were both one-term governments. But if a half-decent and reasonable leader, albeit with all of those issues that we talked about before, if they're rewarded with a 5% swing against them, as well as pushing the Premier towards losing his own seat, what kind of punishment is going to be handed out to Scott Morrison at the federal election? We could be looking at a West Australian wipeout. And that West Australian election, I think, will be studied for years by cephologists just in terms of how comprehensive the defeat was. It was a comprehensive defeat in South Australia too, don't get me wrong, but they still have double figures. There's still a viable opposition, which is probably due to the competence that Marshall had. And for listeners who are snorting and saying, you don't know you weren't there, these are all relative terms. <laughs> they weren't as bad a government, say, as other governments around Australia over various times. They weren't anywhere near as bad as the federal government. So, yeah, they might not have been a great government, but we have to give credit where it's due, otherwise it, analysis becomes meaningless. Relatively good compared to someone who's objectively bad is still relatively good. <laughs> I think that connection that Scott Morrison has become... I suspect one of the most loathed prime ministers. He doesn't seem to have that core believers that John Howard had, that I would argue Tony Abbott had, that Bob Hawke had, that Kevin Rudd had, that 
10 or 15% of people who are with you the whole way. Morrison doesn't seem to have that, at least not in any obvious way. Now, it's possible that within the Pentecostal, throughout the whole movement, that he has that. But it's not mainstream enough, I don't think, as much as they're trying to posit themselves in the mainstream. I, I don't think that's mainstream enough. And the thousands of votes that they're claiming, which I don't doubt, but I don't think that that will be enough. That will, may stem the bloodletting a bit, but I don't think it's centralised enough. And we can't discount the effects of the Omicron breakout in South Australia. They had their recent outbreak in December and they're still managing the effects of that. And there have been suggestions that this played actually a major part in this South Australia election. And, and there was a similar pattern in New South Wales where the Liberal Party suffered big swings in those recent by-elections after their Omicron breakout, which also happened in December last year. And we'll get a better idea of whether Omicron breakouts are affecting election outcomes after the federal election. And, and if that's the case, it might end up being an issue for Daniel Andrews in the Victoria election due at the end of the year. Yeah, it could be. Daniel Andrews has that absolute following. The Dan stands, as they call, love him to death. However, too, that those that don't like him really detest him. There are all kinds of claims made about him and all kinds of rumours go around about him, all from the loony right. But some of those filter down into swinging voters and it gives them pause for thought. I think Andrews has been a very good premier. And I think this third wave, I guess you'd call it, uh, the Omicron variant, caught everybody by surprise, even though it shouldn't have. I think they were kind of hoping that if we ignore it, it might just go away, which of course hasn't been the case. Well, it seems like most of the people that detest Daniel Andrews in Victoria actually exist in the media, but that's a, that's a separate issue that we can look at later on. But the South Australia election, it adds to the list of elections since the 2019 federal election. There was a by-election in the seat of Eden Monero in 2020, a by-election in Groom, and that's up in Queensland. There were general elections in Western Australia, Queensland, Tasmania, the ACT and Northern Territory. And all of those elections and the by-elections, except for Tasmania, have provided bad news for the coalition. So... There can always be speculation about the coalition's chances at the next federal election in May or the speculation about opinion polls and what they actually mean, but we can't ignore all of those election results that have occurred over the past three years, and there's not very much good news in very many of these elections for the Liberal Party at the moment. If I was in the Liberal Party, I'd be probably dusting off my CV and seeing if there are any uh, nice jobs around. We haven't had as many resignations as I thought. There's been a few, don't get me wrong, but I would have thought that there'd been a few more stepping down to spend time with my family. The journey has been wonderful, but I've done all I can type thing. And I'm not blaming anyone for that either. Sometimes the writing on the wall is too clear. I think there's probably some delusion that some might get back in. And given uh, 2019, where they were widely expected to lose and they got back in, there could be a bit of that that he knows what he's doing and we've, we've won before from a position as bad as this. I'm not so sure this time that it'll happen. I'm not saying it won't happen, but I, I, I'm not so sure that it will. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, 
SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Up next, factions in the Labour Party. But does anyone in the media understand what they actually are? The issue of Labor Party factions has been highlighted in the weeks since the death of Senator Kimberly Kitching and highlighted for all of the wrong reasons. And of course, many people commenting in the conservative media about the undue role of Labor Party factions have virtually no knowledge about factions and usually use them to weaponise the case against Labor ever being elected. The factions in the Labor Party, and the Liberal Party has them too, despite what Malcolm Turnbull said a few years ago. We're not run by factions. We're not run by, well, you may, you may, uh, you may, you may uh, dispute that, but I have to tell you from experience, we are not run by factions. They play a part in being able to manage the differences that do exist when you gather around 100 MPs and senators into one political party. And to paraphrase Otto von Bismarck, the public should never see what goes on in the making of a sausage. And the same applies to factions. We should just look at the outcomes rather than how those outcomes are made. Factions are based on personalities, political ideologies, and who actually sponsor the arrival of a particular MP into Parliament, whether that's a union or a business interest group or any other interest group. And some of these personalities are vindictive and spiteful, and in some cases would prefer to lose a federal election rather than give up their hold on their personal fiefdoms. The media will magnify factions into a negative issue for Labor. They rarely actually do this for the Liberal Party, but... Should factions be left to lurk in the background and do their dirty work, or should their full workings be exposed in the light of day? All parties, particularly federal parties, have to have factions. The Labour Party in Tasmania is a different party to the Labour Party in Queensland. Now, they have a lot in common, but there's differences that are partly state-based things, it's partly personality, it's based on the demographic of those who join Is it closer to the Catholic social justice, economic conservative side of things? Is it closer to the Marxist, more radical side of things? And of course, whenever you get more than one person in a room, you're going to get differences. Sometimes the differences are slight. Sometimes the differences are are, are extreme. The Labour Party has factions because that's how it manages. And of course, the Labour Party's factions are famous because they were the first ones to make them official and that you could align yourself with a particular faction that has been named and often the people in it are known to be in that faction. The Liberal Party does it too and the leaders of its factions have their followers. I guess the most famous case of Liberal Party factions recently that we can look at a bit historically and it's not that recent was when... um, Malcolm Turnbull was going for the leadership of the party and, and Joe Hockey looked around and thought that he might have the numbers so he could become leader and so used the numbers in his moderate faction to basically split the moderate vote. Nick Minchin 
saw the opportunity and so put up Tony Abbott from the right faction. And that gave us, I think, Australia's longest serving opposition leader and one of Australia's shortest serving prime ministers in, in Tony Abbott. The whole Dutton versus Morrison thing is partly factional friction. There's a, a few other issues at play there, but it is Dutton's right faction as opposed to Morrison's centre-right faction. And the other thing, too, we can see is that the right faction has dragged the Liberal Party to the right. Even the moderates are further to the right than they used to be. The Labour Party factions seem to almost ossify that the left is very left. They're out-and-out socialists, whereas the right are less easy with that term. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of issues there. Now, of course, I have a problem with simplistic, dualist terms like left and right. It doesn't really reflect, I think, modern politics. I think we need to think about what we mean by left and right. I think we need to rethink our political definitions. There's been a few attempts at it, but none have taken, partly because I think we have a mainstream media who don't like complexity and nuance and would rather describe things in the rather simple left and right and then the implication that left is bad and right is good whereas it's much more complex than that. There are people who 30 years ago might have been considered right-wing but have left-wing tendencies and vice versa. And that's not necessarily a decline in political discourse either. There's values, ideologies and philosophies change over time. Now, we don't want to talk too much about Kimberly Kitching because the mainstream media has used her death to amplify their message against the Labor Party, but most of their behaviour has been totally undignified during this time. We probably shouldn't have expected anything better, but the usual culprits have been involved, News Corporation, of course. Samantha Maiden seemed to be using the opportunity to plug a new book that she's writing. Politicians such as Simon Birmingham, Peter Dutton, Scott Morrison, Josh Frydenberg, they just all wanted to score political points against the Labor Party. And I think it shows how disturbed some of these people actually are. And of course, there has to be analysis of factions in the Labor Party within the media and within public discourse. It can't be just this no-go area where their bad behaviour is just ignored. But the death of Kimberly Kitching was used by the conservative media to attack people such as Penny Wong, Christina Keneally, Katie Gallagher, even Tanya Plibersek, who, even though those issues didn't seem to have very much to do with her, but this was a typical conservative media attack and conservative politicians attack as well. If you can't attack people's credibility using conventional and reasonable methods, well, use some innuendo against them, use some gossip, attribute comments to a person who has died, and all of these facts can't be checked. Yeah. I mean, I think that these attacks aren't really about a Senator Kitching at all. They're aiming at some of those players you mentioned earlier, Penny Wong, the toughest bastard in politics at the moment, I think is one of the big targets. Uh, and of course, Penny Wong, uh, she's up front. She's never done anything improper that I can think of, but she's smarter than the whole of the federal parliamentary Liberal Party combined. She's forensic in her attacks. She is accurate. She's like a, a sniper when, it, when she's in those committees asking about this line item and that line item and what was said where and whose advice was this. And she gives the government a lot of damage. 
and she's not scared to stand up for what's right or what she thinks is right. And she's not scared to have conflict with others. And as more and more revelations come out about Senator Kitching's relationships, and I'm not going to comment on any of those rumours because I don't know which ones are true, which ones aren't. And I don't think it's seemly just yet. I think we need to wait some time before we look at this stuff. And I know that that's often the thing after a gun massacre. Now's not the time to talk about guns bleaching in the barrier reef now's not the time to talk about climate but a person has died and she had a family she had friends they don't need to be subjected to gossip and innuendo whether true or not but i will say if this is any help to them that i don't think a lot of these attacks are about her and they're certainly not about her legacy that is as it is and it will be revealed as time goes on. And I'm sure, like most politicians, there'll be a mixture of good and a mixture of bad, stuff that she might have done but couldn't, etc., etc. Now, the idea of Labor Party factions, it might not be the biggest political issue in politics ever. It's a big issue within the media at the moment. And what I'm going to suggest might not appear to people in the same way, but in my opinion, this has been one of the lowest ebbs in politics and the media. And it's not that far away from the... Penny Eastern issue in Western Australia back in 1993 that was used by the Liberal Party against Carmen Lawrence. She was WA Premier at the time and then she moved into federal politics and essentially accusing her of killing a woman who had suicided. But this is the type of action that is typical of conservative political parties and of news corporation. They've got this habit of using the actions and words of people who have died They use that to attack the Labor Party and their actions that can never be checked with the person who has died. They're just simply not around. And this has mainly been done to try and neutralise the man problem in the Liberal Party as if to say, oh, look, Labor's got the same problems that we've got, but they're even far worse. They actually kill people. Yeah, the implication is just awful. It's unfair. We don't know really, or at least I haven't seen any reports on what killed Senator kitching except a heart attack and i think i saw a report that it was a pre-existing condition it was unlikely the stress it was unlikely the bullying she'd been a part of that scene for a long time and if it was the stress and bullying it's not just coming from one side and we've also been asked if this will be an ongoing issue in the lead up to the federal election and we do have to remember that the liberal party is the expert in being able to magnify a relatively non-existent issue into a massive problem within the electorate. So if they can see that they can easily manufacture a negative issue and if they can gain traction within the electorate with that issue, well, that's where they'll go. And But it's also a question of whether the electorate will look at these issues and say, oh, well, factions in the Labor Party tell me something that I don't already know, or if they actually want to explore the issue any further. And I think the issue, personally, I think the issue will blow over, but the strategy strategy is to throw mud at the Labor Party and hope that some of that sticks. And the management and interplay of factions, well, that's definitely a problem, not just in the Labor Party, but in the Liberal Party as well. It's, well, in all political parties, but very few people understand or care too much about this issue. The media, of course, they're infatuated with the issue, but I'm pretty sure that it will be overtaken by other factors in the electorate. And you wouldn't expect an election to be decided by factional problems in either political party. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, 
Listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. two months before an election and it's obvious that Scott Morrison and the Liberal National Coalition they're totally keen to focus on all those issues that don't really matter that much because it distracts from all the other important issues that the coalition has been mismanaging there's the floods there's the economy there's climate change and if you can get the electorate talking about Labor Party factions and all of these other things they're not talking about everything else and but in this case, I just don't think that it's going to be as easy as that. Morrison has also announced that he's sending coal to Ukraine. How this is all to be done and how much coal or even why we're sending coal to Ukraine is never questioned by the media. It's, and it's something that can't readily be checked. But it neatly segues into Morrison's push into that world of fossil fuels and making it seem like he's an action man on Ukraine. Peter Dutton is also doing his method of distraction as well by announcing an Australian space agency. And nobody in the media pointed out that Dutton's announcement is a replica of his announcement of an Australian space agency almost two years ago. And it's an agency that will probably never be Created. But you'd think that the government would be sick of these diversions and repeat announcements, but if it distracts the electorate from all of the coalition's problems, well, they'll just keep doing it. Yeah. To start with Peter Dutton's Space Force, he, he, as you said, he keeps announcing it. Australia has had a small space program. I don't quite know how he wants to expand it, and it's not quite clear what it would do once expanded. Do we need the particular uniform it's just, again, a distraction. It will never happen. They could probably base it at the Western Sydney Airport. <laughs> they may as well announce that. With the coal to Ukraine, Poland is not the biggest. I thought it was the biggest coal mining country in Europe. That turns out to be Germany. But Poland, right next to Ukraine, has a lot of coal mines. And Poland is committed to supporting Ukraine in this conflict. So a shortage of coal is not really an issue. And one shipload would probably last maybe a week if you're lucky. I guess it gives the impression that we're doing something to help and paying off donors, as you said, but also not committing too much in terms of military resources. I don't think anyone in Australia would want to see Australian military personnel going to Ukraine, at least at this point. It's too far away. Its aims don't directly influence Australian, apart from the price of fuel, but that's everybody. And there are other ways of dealing with the price of fuel. Well, all of those issues that have plagued the government over the past three years are still there. The economy, climate change, ongoing COVID management, cost of living has sharply increased in recent times. And Morrison's response to all of these problems is a glib response to say that things will always be far worse under a Labor government, even though there's absolutely no evidence to suggest this. It's just mindless political speculation. But announcements about the future isn't really what Scott Morrison should be worried about. He should be worried about the here and 
around the now. He keeps plunging in the polls. He's been marked down in the latest essential poll for his government's incredibly poor response to the floods in Queensland and northern New South Wales. And Morrison's responses to all of this is, is also tone deaf. He keeps claiming that his government has learned from the mistakes from the past and that they have the experience to deal with the problems in the future. But this is just simply not true. They didn't learn anything from the bushfires in 2020 that they could then apply to the floods in 2022. And they made exactly the same mistakes of either not acting quickly enough or not acting at all. There's been no evidence of learning from the many mistakes during the vaccination rollout or the problems within the JobKeeper program or issues such as the $2 billion payment that they had to make for the cancellation of the French submarines program. This is a government that just keeps squandering money and keeps making mistakes, and they're expecting to be rewarded for these mistakes. And I think the electorate has just become a lot more wary about the behaviour of Scott Morrison and the behaviour of the Morrison government. Yes, it's a government that hasn't actually proven its need for existence. It's done nothing, and it's had terrible opportunities. The bushfires did nothing. There are still people living in caravans after losing their home two years ago in the south of New South Wales. There's talk of just bulldozing Lismore and areas of southeast Queensland because this, the damage is so intense they'll never get back there. I don't know how serious this talk is, and I'd like to think all of these communities will come back. And I think they can, but the support has to be there, and only government can give that support. We can't rely on charity and we can't rely on private enterprise. Only government can build back the communities that are destroyed. But Morrison failed in the bushfires and didn't learn the lesson. Anna Palaszczuk did. The Queensland state response has been very good. It's probably not enough, but that's a resource issue. That's not a competence or a um, unwillingness issue. It's just that Queensland has a bit less money than the federal government and a bit less staffing resource. New South Wales, again, acted deplorably by just not doing anything. And of course, when they are forced to give out money, they make political choices, forgetting that they govern for everybody. And in times like this, everybody should be treated equally. If you live in the Liberal electorate, you got money. If you lived across the road in the Green or Labor electorate, you didn't. People who live in separate electorates have neighbours, have friends, have family. So there's no hiding this. And I know that their philosophy is small government and government shouldn't be a part of things. But as we've seen since almost the day they were elected, this philosophy doesn't work. It's a failed idea. It's a failed ideology. And we've got to get rid of it. Well, even if your political ideology is based around having small government, you still got to learn from your mistakes. So the key to a successful politician is that ability to be able to learn from your mistakes. And John Howard's key to his success and his political longevity was that he never repeated the same mistake. He learned from his mistakes. And that's one thing that this government certainly hasn't been able to do. And the Problems for Scott Morrison just seem to be getting worse as well. So there is qualitative research suggesting that he's viewed within the electorate as an incompetent prime minister and a compulsive liar. And that's just not us saying that. And a lot of people have been criticising us for continuously having a go at Scott Morrison. Well, if he was a better prime minister, maybe we wouldn't be doing this. But 
It's not just us saying that. These are issues that are being determined and identified by Essential Research, by Newspoll and Roy Morgan Research. And in the latest Roy Morgan opinion poll, the two-party preferred vote for the coalition is 42%, while Labor is at 58%. And that's a total electoral wipeout in Australian politics. The Morgan poll has historically overplayed the Labor vote in its polling, but these Figures are really terrible for Scott Morrison and for the Liberal Party. And there's also been some chatter, continuous chatter on social media about Morrison being dumped. Now, I'm not sure if this is just wishful thinking on behalf of social media or what it is, but this can only happen while all the MPs are in Canberra at the same time. And that's where they'll all be for the budget announcement next week. But it's hard to see a Prime Minister, irrespective of how terrible they are, being dumped during the budget week. But Parliament is so bizarre these days that we probably should expect some sort of bizarre thing to happen. But Morrison is probably the one who will be leading the Liberal Party and the government into the next election, however unlikely they are to win that next election. If they call a spill meeting, he just goes to the Governor-General. I think he's smart enough to do that, which means that they would be less likely to spill him. Technically, of course, in the caretaker government period, you can't unless something catastrophic happens. This is not a party that likes rules, even the ones it makes. It could be that they overturn the current rules that Morrison put in about the two-thirds majority, etc., etc., and just have it a bare majority. They could probably even put in that he's not allowed to stand again and that if a meeting is called, the leader cannot call for an election type thing. All this is possible. How likely is is a whole other story. But as you rightly said, we live in insane times and anything can happen. It, It makes life very hard as an analyst because you can come up with the most outrageous thing, think, no, no, that, that would never happen. Think something else and then it turns out that the thing that you thought was outrageous was only about as a tenth as insane as what actually happened. So so anything's possible. I think he will go to the next election. I think that the chances of him being dumped before the election at this stage are very short because I don't think anyone would want to lead the coalition to an historic defeat which is what it's looking like happening. Even if you only put in six weeks before, it's too close to the election for people to say, oh, we we better give the new person a go. And really, of all the front bench, I think the only one that would have any chance would be Maurice Payne. Not to agree with anything she said or endorse her or anything like that, but she's the least worst candidate, I think, of all the front bench. She also sits in the Senate, so it might be a little bit difficult for her. And she's in the Senate, yeah. And because she sits in the Senate, they'd have to find her a seat. I mean, they could strip Morrison of his seat. You've got three months to transition down, so they could find her a safe-ish seat and hope that she wins. This is when Holt drowned. Gorton came down from the Senate and they had three months, but they were able to put him into Holt's seat which made perfect sense at the time. Finding a safe seat for a senator might be problematic. So who knows what will happen, but I think he will go to the election. I think a lot of his opponents are very happy for that. I think people want to see him lose too, which is a level of brutality we don't see too often in Australian political discourse, that people want to see him give the concession speech. The diehards do. The diehards want to see the leader of the other side lose. 
But when you're getting this from the less committed, shall we say, things are looking grim for the Prime Minister. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.